Guys, it's your boy Mike back again with another episode of the Wit Pod or the Witcast. I'm still kind of working out which one I like better. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks for you know coming again to this episode that you're on. Uh, I do have some announcements, and I have a great episode I think for you. Um, news for the Witcast: We are changing our release date. It will no longer be Thursday mornings. Uh, it'll probably move to Tuesday mornings or Wednesday mornings. Uh, or if you have a an idea as to when it would be the best to release it. Like maybe you like to get your weekend started. So maybe it's Friday morning thing, but why, right? It's because I am starting a new podcast uh, in, in addition to the Witcast uh, with a previous guest of mine at Third Coast Tom. Uh, we were recently uh, offered a chance to start a new podcast based around uh, football, fantasy football uh, specifically. And the name of this podcast will be fantasy flyers um when it will be is the next question but i'm not sure yet we haven't decided on like our breakout episode or when we want to release and i'm really kind of methodical and tactical about when i like to do things or i try to be don't we all though so that's coming in the few weeks or in a few weeks maybe a month or so too but uh really exciting stuff i can't wait to get into it because you know me i love to like crunch numbers and look at facts and do the research and so i do plan on maybe hosting a fantasy football league of my own, you know, kind of put my money where my mouth is. So if I can get enough people to do it, that'd be great. If not, I'll have to dig into my work bag and, uh, you know, get some of those guys, which I don't mind. It's, I do it all for the people and, and the people do it for me, I hope. So, you know, smash that like button like they say, right? Next, um, what will stay the same? The Witcast will still be my creative outlet where I kind of pick a story, I pick a topic, and I make it my own, or try to, and, and I you know, take you guys on an adventure or something. I, I have so much fun doing it, and, and I mean, it, it costs nothing uh, to follow, and, and it costs me just time and effort to put into this. And I mean, I, like I said, I really enjoy doing the homework. Uh, I feel like I'm getting smarter because of it. So if this is something you're into and, and you want to keep rocking with me, I appreciate it. So with all that being said, um, I don't have a whole lot to uh, add to the announcements other than my, uh, my intro music that you may have heard. I really hope you heard it, if, unless I did it wrong. So <clears throat> I was really excited when I found that. Uh, I feel like it in, encompasses my vibe. Like I'm very chill. I'm very laid back. Not, not super strict about what I do or what I say, but you know that's, that's the way we like to ride. It's a vibe, right? It's a vibe. So first... On, on the agenda for this for, for what I've got for you guys today we're going to talk about cruel and unusual punishment right and how that is affected in my life and in your life and every other kid in America or around the world to be honest with you uh, so when I was a child way back when you know in the 1900s um, my parents would and and I was the youngest of four mind you so I've got two sisters and a brother and I'm the youngest of four they would make me my parents my parents would make us, like say things or do things to go outside and play, even though we could probably go outside and play anyways. They didn't have to be a test. But they would make me, the youngest, 
pass the test and it would be a tongue twister of some kind like the easy the easier one of the two would be uh jenny's phone number uh which is eight six seven five three oh nine it's nine it's nine i knew it was nine i'm just playing uh eight six seven five three oh nine so i had to say that and for the life of me i could not I just couldn't. Um, it, it escaped me. No matter how hard I tried, I would. You know, maybe they were trying to test. Like, is this kid going to be good with numbers? Spoiler alert: I wasn't. Um, and, and if that was any rubric, I, I failed many a test as a child. So if you would have given me an aptitude test at ten or however old I was, I, I couldn't do it. I, I was not the guy. It should have been someone else. I did not volunteer as tribute. Uh, I did not sign up for this. All the other kids just got to go play for free. You know, I had to pay a fee. And this next one was more taxing on me than anything else, right? So for all of my Spanish speakers, maybe you've heard this one before. But but for anyone who's not, prepare yourself. You know, Parangue y Cutirimicuero is a Spanish tongue twister that I could not say either. So if you thought I was going to be a word guy, you were mistaken. I, I was just not good at things as a child. I, you know, everybody's got to be good at something. I was good at nothing. Um, I was really good at sticking to the ground. I'm a shorter guy, but uh, yes. So it's of Spanish descent from the country of origin, being Mexico, um, and, and kind of like this article that I found that kind of talks to it uh, was reported on. Uh, I believe the the speaker was Yasmin Ochoa, and. She was born in Michoacan, Mexico. She came to the United States when she was a toddler. She is currently a sophomore at Dartmouth College, uh, who, who took this information from her that I'm stealing from them. So credit to Dartmouth College, just in case you hear this and you hate me. Uh, but not many people speak on this, so I'm pretty happy that you guys did. A lot of her family still resides in Mexico, and she returns there for a month every year. She still feels very connected to the culture and the people due to her visits to see her family in Mexico. So for the contextual data of said tongue twister, uh, cultural context being tongue twisters in Spanish speaking countries are used in a similar way in similar places as others. Tongue twisters are most common with children who are taught them in order to learn difficult sounds and methods of speaking. These tongue twisters can be used as entertainment for children during playtime or be a part of a tongue twister contest where students compete to be able to say it the fastest or the best at speaking it. And some of the most popular uses, Spanish language, has many difficult sounds and many words with consonants that have to be said rather fast. So, you know, it's weird. I didn't see on there a form of weird and, you know, unusual punishment for children, but I, that's how I felt at the time. So maybe I'm being dramatic. There's, you know, a high chance I'm being dramatic. Now, in the social context, this is a common Spanish language tongue twister considered an extremely challenging tongue twister that is focuses on the main word and expanded to a full tongue twister, which they never made me say, so I appreciate that. You know, it could have been harder, I guess, which makes it even more difficult. Not many people learn the whole tongue twister, but it would be expected that almost every Spanish speaker would know the word. It is difficult. Uh, it is a difficult word for non-Spanish speakers to say. Parangueycutirimicuero is the name of a, a town in Mexico, but people learn how to say it all over. It's something. It is something that, as a Spanish-speaking child, you learn to do, like you would learn the alphabet or count. As a child, you must learn how to say it, uh, or the other children will make fun of you. 
for not being able to say it. It is considered fun to say, and it is expected that a native Spanish speaker knows how to say the words in the tongue twister that rhyme with Parangue Cotiremicoro are all made up of words and have no real meaning. However, one can tell from their endings, the first two are treated as verbs and the last is a noun. So, <clears throat> the moment of truth, right? Like, so I've just realized that this is a thing and I'm going to try to say it and I've not practiced, but I can say the main word, right? So I should be able to say it all. So let me get some water in, let me prep, like me, 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 me. However, I can do that, right? Oh man, this is going to be tough. So <clears throat> the original Spanish tongue twister that uh, everyone says is... El volcán de Paraguay Cutirimicoro se quiere desparanguay cutirimicosar y quien lo desparanguay cutirim... I failed. Ah, man. I tried. I tried really hard. So it goes on as uh, desparanguay cutirimicoresa. Uh, Rise será un gran desparanguay cutirimicuarizador. That's it. That's it. I'm leaving. There's a period. It ended. I'm done. I'm done. I, I tap. I failed. I tried. I almost got it. Um, which is basically translates to um, the volcano in Parangueycotirimicoro wants to rise, and who it doesn't make sense. All right, they're not real words. Will be a great risador. I'm not sure what it's supposed to translate into. It's all nonsense. But that was my childhood tongue twister. I don't know if you guys got the the little janky uh, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck woodchuck could chuck wood. Like that's easy mode as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it's all the wood. So uh, I, I know that in history and in cultures all over that uh, tongue twisters and like fun word riddle things are, are all over the place. Like, uh, I know, think there's one about a silver fox. It's supposed to say that it has all the letters of the alphabet. And I don't know if that's in, if that's supposed to be a harder one. I didn't look all these up. I just wanted you to share my pain, which is very important to me that everybody here understands my childhood. But now we get on to the meat and potatoes, right? And that being, the myth, the man, the legend, the story of D.B. Cooper. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of D.B. Cooper, uh, it is the only unsolved like skyjacking, right? Every other skyjacking, at least in America, has been solved. This one was never solved. And so I would like you to join me again on, on another adventure, another journey. Uh, spoiler alert, there's going to be a lot of reading uh, I don't love it, but it's really hard, but it's such a good story. So I want to bring you along with me. I was really inspired because everybody likes true crime and drama and all that jazz. And I don't know too much about it. So I had to Google all this stuff, right? So on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a man carrying a black briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport using cash. The man bought a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute round trip to SeaTac, uh, Seattle Tacoma International Airport. On this ticket, uh, the man listed his name as Dan Cooper. Eyewitnesses described Cooper as a white male in his mid-40s with dark hair and brown eyes, wearing a black or brown business suit. 
a white shirt and a thin black tie, a black raincoat and brown shoes. Carrying a briefcase and a brown paper bag, Cooper boarded Flight 305, a Boeing 727-100. Cooper took seat 18E in the last row and ordered a drink, a bourbon and 7-Up. Now, <clears throat> I planned to have a bourbon, uh, maybe not with 7-Up, but a bourbon here, but uh, I don't have any on me, so you're just going to have to bear with me as I smash a Red Bull and drink some water. With a crew of six and 37 passengers aboard, Flight 305 left Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, uh, by the way, um, on the West Coast, it's PST. Um, shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, sitting in the jump seat directly behind Cooper. Assuming the note was a lonely businessman's phone number, Schaffner dropped the note unopened into her purse. Cooper then leaned over towards her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Dun, dun, dun. That's crazy, right? Like, imagine, put yourself in her shoes or her heels, her low pumps, whatever. You go to work, you're minding your business, you're like, cool, gonna go on another flight. <sighs> North American flights are boring because you're not going anywhere exciting, but you gotta pay the bills, right? So she gets a note from a guy, she thinks he likes her, and she kind of maybe half smiles, like a little hee hee hee, and then like, yo, dude has a bomb. Mind blown, right? Like, not literally blown, but physically blown, or figuratively. <laughs> So Schaffner opened the note in neat, all capital letters printed with a felt tip pen. Cooper had written, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and want you to sit by me. Schaffner returned the note to Cooper, sat down as Cooper requested and quietly asked to see the bomb. I don't know why, he would ask. Like, maybe he's bluffing. Ah, oh, man, <laughs> you got me. I sure don't have a bomb. But to no surprise, um, Cooper... Uh, as Cooper requested and quietly asked to see the bomb, Cooper opened his briefcase and Schaffner saw two rows of four red cylinders, as she assumed was dynamite. Attached to the cylinders was a wire and a large cylindrical battery, which is very bomb-esque. Cooper closed the briefcase and told Schaffner his demands. Schaffner wrote a note with Cooper's demands, carried the note to the cockpit, and informed the flight crew of the situation. Captain Scott directed Schaffner to remain in the cockpit for the remainder of the flight and take notes of the event as they unfolded. Scott then contacted Northwest Flight Operations in Minnesota and relayed the hijacker's demands. Uh, Cooper requests $200,000 in a knapsack by 5 p.m. He wants two front parachutes and two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency. With Schaffner in the cockpit, flight attendant Tina Mucklow sat next to Cooper to act as a liaison between Cooper and the flight crew. Cooper then made additional demands. Upon landing in Seattle, the fuel trucks must meet the plane and all passengers must remain seated while Mucklow brought the money aboard. After he had the money, said Cooper, he would release the passengers. The last items brought aboard would be the four parachutes. Um, just for a little <clears throat> information on that, uh, front and back parachutes, you're, you're talking about your primary and your secondary. Like I guess when you jump from a plane, you, you everybody has a backup uh, chute just in case the first one doesn't open up or there's any issues with that at all, you have a way to not die as soon as you meet the ground. So continuing on, 
Captain William A. Scott informed Seattle-Tacoma Airport Traffic Control of the situation. The SeaTac ATC contacted local police and the FBI. The passengers were told their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. Donald Nyrop, the president of Northwest Orient, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate with the hijacker and comply with his demands. For approximately two hours, Flight 305 circled uh, Pudget Sound to give Seattle um, police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's ransom money and parachutes and to mobilize emergency personnel. During the flight from Portland to Seattle, Cooper demanded the flight attendant Mucklow remain by his side at all times. Mucklow said that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. While looking out the window, Cooper remarked, looks like Tacoma down there. As the aircraft flew above it, Cooper also correctly noted McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from SeaTac Airport. Mucklow later described the hijacker's demeanor. Cooper was not nervous. He seemed rather nice and was not cruel or nasty. Well, you know, which is kind of nice. Like, you know, you want all your hijackers to be nice, you know, not nasty or cruel. You know, just real nice. Like, hey, I'm here for the money and I'm getting out. Like, mind your business. Um, I did, you know, no funny business is what they say. But uh, while the plane circled Seattle, Mucklow chatted with Cooper and asked why he picked Northwest Airlines to hijack. Cooper replied, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines. It's just because I have a grudge. Cooper then asked where Mucklow was from, and Mucklow said she was originally from Pennsylvania, but was living in Minneapolis at the time. Minnesota was very nice. Uh, yeah, it was very nice country. Cooper responded. Mucklow then asked Cooper where he was from, but he became upset and refused to answer. Cooper then asked Mucklow uh, if she smoked and offered her a cigarette. Mucklow said that she had quit but accepted the cigarette from Cooper. FBI records note, Cooper briefly spoke to an unidentified passenger while the plane maintained its holding pattern over Seattle. In his interview with FBI agents, passenger George Labasanere said he visited the restroom directly behind Cooper on several occasions. After one restroom visit, Labasanere said that the path to his seat was blocked by a passenger wearing a cowboy hat, questioning Mucklow about the alleged mechanical issue with the aircraft. Labasanere said Cooper was initially amused by the interaction then became irritated and told the man to return to his seat, but the cowboy ignored Cooper and continued to question Mucklow. Labasanere claimed he eventually persuaded the cowboy to return to his seat. Mucklow's version of the interaction differed from Labasanere's. Mucklow said a passenger approached her and asked for a sports magazine to read because he was bored. Mucklow and the passenger moved to an area directly behind Cooper where the passenger and she looked for magazines. The passenger took a copy of the New Yorker and returned to his seat. When Mucklow returned to sit with Cooper, he said, if that was a sky marshal, I don't want any more of that. Despite his brief interaction with Cooper, the cowboy was not interviewed by the FBI and was never identified. FBI agents used several banks in Seattle to assemble the ransom. The money, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most of which had serial numbers beginning with L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, was photographed on microfilm by the FBI. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel and demanded four civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained the two front reserve parachutes from a local skydiving school and two back the main parachutes from a local stunt pilot. Now, it's important to note, 
um, that when he said negotiable bills, you got to remember the times $20 could buy you a lot more in 1971 than it could now. So that's what he meant by negotiable. Like I can spend this, you know, anywhere. Nobody's like, really like, why do you only have hundred dollar bills on you? I mean, I guess even in today's economy, like if you just walked around with like $20,000 in hundreds or $200,000, I mean, I would look kind of suspiciously at you. But uh, also, um, for what I read, uh, he didn't want military issue parachutes because they couldn't be um, steered as easily. So they were, they were, he wanted more civilian grade. Because if you've ever been in the military, you know, military grade is like low grade for some reason. But he wanted more steering control in his parachutes. So around 524 PST, Captain Scott was informed that the parachutes had been delivered to the airport and notified Cooper that they would soon be landing at 546, which is 20-ish eh, minutes. That's fair. Soon. Flight 305 landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Scott asked Cooper's permission, and Cooper agreed to park the aircraft on a partially lit runway away from the main terminal. Cooper demanded only one representative of the airline could approach the plane with the parachutes and the money. And the only entrance and exit would be through the aircraft's front door via mobile air stairs. Northwest Orient Seattle operations manager Al Lee was designated to, to be the courier who would approach the aircraft with the items Cooper requested. To avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake Lee's airline uniform for that of a law enforcement officer, he changed into civilian clothes for the task. With the passengers remaining seated, a ground crew attached the mobile stairs. Per Cooper's directive, Mucklow exited the aircraft through the front door and retrieved the ransom money. When Mucklow returned, she carried the money bag past the seated passengers to Cooper, seated in the last row. Cooper then agreed to release the passengers. As the passengers debarked, Cooper inspected the money in an attempt to break the tension. Mucklow jokingly asked Cooper if she could have some of the money. Cooper readily agreed, handed Mucklow a packet of bills, but she immediately returned the money and explained that accepting gratuities was against company policy. Mucklow said Cooper had tried to flip her, or sorry, had tried to tip her and the other two flight attendants earlier in the flight with money from his own pocket, but they too had declined, citing the company policy. I don't know. I'd say yes. I'd be like, yes, give me all the money. I'm, I'm here for it. You want to rob them? I'm robbing them too. Let's go. Like, they, they don't take care of me anyways. So with passengers safely debarked, only Cooper and six crew members remained aboard Flight 305. In accordance with Cooper's demands, Mucklow made three trips outside the aircraft to retrieve the parachutes and brought them to Cooper in the rear of the plane. While Mucklow brought aboard the parachutes, Schaffner asked Cooper if she could retrieve her purse stored in the compartment behind his seat. Cooper agreed and told Schaffner, I won't bite you. Flight attendants Alice Hancock and... Uh, I get lost. Flight attendant Alice Hancock then asked Cooper if the flight attendants could leave, to which Cooper replied, whatever you girls would like to do. So Hancock and Schaffner debarked. When Mucklow brought the final parachute to the Cooper, she gave him printed instructions for using the parachutes. But Cooper said he didn't need them. A problem with the refueling process caused a delay. So a second truck and then a third were brought from uh, brought to the aircraft to complete the refueling. During the delay, Mucklow said Cooper complained the money was delivered in a cloth bag instead of a knapsack, as he had directed. And he now had to improvise a new way to transport the money. 
Using a pocket knife, Cooper cut the canopy from one of the reserve parachutes and stuffed some of the money into the empty parachute bag. So now we're down to three parachutes. Uh, two main, one reserve. So already starting off kind of bad, but I can imagine like if you're trying to commit crimes, you don't need any delays that'll upset you. So an FAA official uh, requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, but Cooper denied the request. Cooper became impatient, saying, this shouldn't take so long. Let's get this show on the road. Cooper then gave the cockpit crew his flight plan and directives, a southeast course toward Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots or 115 miles an hour, at a maximum of 10,000 feet uh, or 3,000 meters above the ground altitude. Cooper also specified the landing gear must remain deployed and the wing flaps must be lowered 15 degrees. So we're flying super slow and low. And the cabin must remain unpressurized because if it was pressurized and you open the door, you know, crazy things happen. So for whatever purpose, he kept the plane low, slow, and evadable. First officer, William J. Radikaz, or Radikzak, yeah, I like that better, Radikzak, informed Cooper the flight configuration. Cooper had specified limited the aircraft's range to about 1,000 miles, uh, so a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno Tahoe International Airport as a refueling stop. Cooper further directed the aircraft takeoff with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended. Uh, Northwest's home office objected, leaving the aft staircase deployed during the takeoff was unsafe. Cooper counted the procedure was safe, countered the procedure was safe, saying it can be done, do it. But Cooper did not argue the point and said he would lower the staircase once they were airborne. Cooper demanded Mucklow remain aboard to assist in the operation. Around 7.40 p.m., Flight 305 took off with only Cooper, Mucklow, Captain Scott, and First Officer Radikzak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson aboard the aircraft. Two F-106 fighters from McCord Air Force Base and a Lockheed T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission followed the 727. All All three jets remained or maintained S flight patterns to stay behind the slow moving 727 and out of Cooper's view. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to lower the aft staircase. Mucklow told Cooper and the flight crew she feared being sucked out of the aircraft. The flight crew suggested Mucklow come to the cockpit and retrieve an emergency rope, uh, which she could tie herself to a seat. Cooper rejected the suggestion, stating that he did not want Mucklow going up front or the flight crew coming to the back of the cabin. Mucklow continued to express her fear to Cooper and asked him to cut some cord off one of the parachutes to create a safety line for her. Cooper then told Mucklow he would lower the stairs himself, instructed Mucklow to go to the cockpit, close the curtain partition separating coach and first class sections, and to not return. All right. Before she left, Mucklow begged Cooper, please, please take the bomb with you. Cooper responded he would either disarm the bomb or take it with him. As Mucklow walked to the cockpit and turned to close the curtain partition, she saw Cooper standing in the aisle, tying what appeared to be the money bag around his waist. From the moment of takeoff to when Mucklow entered the cockpit, 
only four to five minutes had elapsed. For the rest of the flight to Reno, Mucklow remained in the cockpit. Mucklow was the last person to see the hijacker. Around 8 p.m., a cockpit warning light flashed, indicating the aft air case had been activated. The pilot used the cabin intercom to ask Cooper if he needed assistance, but Cooper's last message was a one-word reply, no. Suddenly, the crew's ears popped. The cabin air pressure had dropped because the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section suddenly pitched forward, forcing the pilots to trim and return the aircraft to level flight. In his interview with the FBI, co-pilot Bill Radizak, or Radizak said the sudden upward pitch occurred while, he, uh, while the flight was near the suburbs north of Portland. With the aft cabin door open and the staircase deployed, the flight crew remained in the cockpit, but were now unsure if Cooper was still aboard. Mucklow used the cabin intercom to inform Cooper they were approaching Reno, and he needed to raise the stairs to the plane so they could land safely. Mucklow repeated her requests as the pilots made the final approach to land, but neither Mucklow nor the flight crew received a reply from the hijacker. At 11.02 p.m., the aft staircase still deployed, Flight 305 landed at Reno Tahoe International Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police established a perimeter around the aircraft, but fearing the hijacker and the bomb were still aboard, did not approach the plane. Captain Scott searched the cabin, confirmed Cooper was no longer aboard, and after a 30-minute search, an FBI bomb squad declared the cabin safe. And for the most part, that's the story. That's the event. Those are the events that unfolded on that night. Um, and that's crazy to think that, I mean, just just from the beginning of this, right? Like, uh, where'd they take off at 2.50 p.m.? And, and from what we can tell, he was off by 8 p.m. So that's like five and a half hours uh, uh, of come get you some. Like, this guy committed, like, an amazing feat or, or dishonorable crime in like enough time to eat lunch, get on the plane and make it home in time for dinner. That's crazy. So now I'm going to rearrange my notes a little bit and then we're going to kind of get into it. Maybe look at some of the suspects kind of inquire or not inquire, but theorize as to what may or may not have happened. Because as I mentioned, this is unsolved to this day. Nobody knows who, db cooper actually was but there are plenty of people uh, even to this day that think they know or have an idea all right so i just want to point out that uh from where he jumped they tried to reverse engineer like oh we felt an oscillation which is the red light the red light doesn't say that stairs are down the reds the red light says that there was an oscillation um, like, like turbulence, if you will. And, uh, they said about 8 PM and they kind of figured that's where he jumped out at, you know, maybe a few minutes for variance, but underneath was just this hundred acre wood, probably more than a hundred acres, but you know, Winnie the Pooh reference. Um, so they were like a lot of people, and this is in the dead of night, 8 PM, it's dark outside. Uh, a lot of people theorize he didn't make it at all, like that he jumped out and that, you know, something went wrong, you know, like it wasn't for years and years and years that 
or, or not years and years, maybe years, a couple of years, that somebody actually found some of the money. Because as I mentioned, the FBI had photocopied all of the money and had actually went as far as to post a list of the serial numbers on like the news or the newspaper. And they were like, hey, if you find this money and you can bring it to us, we'll give you a reward for finding you know some of that stolen money because they were looking for anything they could find to get a hold of this guy. Because they had like composite sketch after composite sketch. It's notable that he, uh, once he got on the plane, he put on some some wrap around the ear kind of sunglasses, and that's in one of those composite sketches. He also had a tie on that he took off. It was a clip on tie, and he took that off and left it. Um, now, a lot of people use that as a big piece of evidence. Like I saw, like there was a class being taught, and they're like, the this tie has rare earth, you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, rare earth evidence. So on the tie, they found a certain amount of like titanium and metal shavings and a bunch of different like rare earth elements that can only be in so many places, especially in that time, right? Like where would you get all of these at the same place? It should give you an answer. It didn't, but it should. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, this tie was made by this company and they only made this tie for these years. And they were, you know, in this warehouse and they only went to this part of the area. And I believe they said that the tie he bought or the tie that he left, uh, and it even had like a little tie pin on it, uh, which was like a mother of pearl, which if you've seen that, it's like either gold or silver, but the, the main pin part is like a circle. It's a pearl. It's the mother of pearl tie pin. Um, they said that this tie was only sold at JCPenney for like, two years tops and they are trying to reverse engineer the tie and part of me you know the the tinfoil hat part of me is like maybe like if if i do anything if i'm leaving evidence at the scene of the crime whether i meant to or not like it's probably not going to tie you back to me in any way shape or form like i'm going to leave you on a wild goose chase that leads you to jc pennies and you're going to find some poor sad schmuck and blame him for it so that's just some notable notables. Um, but some of the suspects here that they've kind of looked at, and these all these guys have kind of the same background, the same kind of guy, right? So Robert Hackstraw um, was first accused in 1978, uh, seven years after, right? Uh, he's a decorated Army paratrooper and could operate a helicopter. He And he had experience with explosives. Um, he had a criminal record, had a, sky, a skydiving uncle named John Cooper, uh, was discharged from the Army five months before the hijacking, did not deny being Cooper, but was quoted as saying, I could have been, or I would not discount myself. So that's sketchy. But then again, I feel like there was a certain level of romance with D.B. Cooper. Like Some people wanted to be D.B. Cooper, this man of mystery that nobody could catch and nobody could find, right? So like, there's a lot of cases that you'll see where people don't mind being accused of being D.B. Cooper because he's like this, not superhero, but maybe like a Robin Hood of sorts, like robbing from the rich to feed the needy. Uh, but there's no confirmed feeding the needy going on here. Another one would be Richard McCoy. And this was a very strong one uh, because in 1972, he was accused uh, because he uh, hijacked a Boeing 727 and escaped from the aft stairway just like D.B. Cooper. He also used a pseudonym. Uh, he's used an explosive device to, to hijack that plane and use handwritten notes. And, and he even went as far as to using a similar uh, phrase, like no funny stuff 
and, and I guess in the seventies is like real mobster. Yeah. No funny stuff. You know, uh, I think even DB Cooper was quoted saying like, uh, yeah, no funny stuff or I'll do the job, you know, like, like real weird, vague criminal things like your, your go-to, like I watched a movie before I committed this crime. Now, when McCoy was caught trying to skyjack a Boeing 727, uh, he demanded 500,000 and four parachutes because, well, D.B. Cooper got 200. What's another five? But again, neither Rackstraw or McCoy were, were charged. Uh, it is worth noting that the, the initial charge that they were trying to use uh, was sky piracy on db cooper but the statute of limitations is five years so the grand jury had upgraded his charge from sky piracy to a violation of the hobbs act which is more or less the same thing um uh let me let me let me confirm sorry i i'd hate to give you the wrong information i just need to find my mouse and i need to go over here and hobbs Act. It's a robbery statute. A conviction under the Hobbs Act requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant knowingly or willfully committed or attempted or conspired to commit robbery or extortion, and two of the defendant's conduct affected interstate commerce. So, more or less, they're trying to say that uh, he extorted the airline for money. Fair enough. That I could see it. But the important thing to note from there, or to take away from there, is that the Hobbs Act has no statute of limitations. So that's why they're saying he's still un, he's uncharged to this day because you could still, if you found DB Cooper, if somebody woke up one day and was like, ah, "I was DB Cooper," whatever, like they could be charged. I mean, I don't know how much time you'd get out of them. Probably life. It could be five years. It'd still be life. Um, but yeah, so the Hobbs Act ensured that they could continue this because they did for a very long time they i think they said that the fbi case file for this was like 40 feet long like that's so much paperwork like that's a whole tree um moving down the uh suspect list we have Dwayne weber now as we get further out there's a lot more grasping straws so Dwayne weber may have owned a bank bag right and he may have injured his knee jumping from a plane uh, it was reported that he may have had a nightmare about leaving fingerprints on the aft stairs of a plane. He also may have visited Tina Barr in 79, which, mind you, years later, 1979, Tina Barr is where they found money, some of that uh, that ransom money or, or stolen money. Uh, it had washed up on the shore, and a kid had found it. I believe it was somewhere in the range of $5,000. Um, but it was all... G- garbagey it was, it was destructed or destructed destroyed like it, it was not usable currency at that point but it was still the matching serial numbers um and this kind of i wouldn't say it cements but it definitely gives some some wing beneath the or some wind beneath the wings to the idea that he didn't make it right like why would he have just like i can't imagine a scenario where he jumps out of the plane and almost immediately drops the money like I'd be so mad. I, hell, I wouldn't say that I was DB Cooper either if I dropped all the ransom money. But so Tina Bar that happened, and a lot of people theorize that it didn't. He didn't land at Tina Bar. He landed further north, and it like came down the river, right? Like it followed the current, and you know ended up at Tina Bar. It's important to note that Dwayne Webber 
also had a military background and a criminal record. And he was the right age, right? He was about 47, and it was said that D.B. Cooper was in his 40s. Um, ultimately, he didn't match any of the suspected evidence, uh, which leads us to William Smith, who also had a military background. He was the ripe age of 43. Now, when I reference ages, this is their age in 1971, not when they were accused. Um, William Smith also matched the physical description and may have known a student named Ira Daniel Cooper in high school. The railroad company he had worked for filed for bankruptcy in 1970 and maybe held a grudge against the plane industry for losing his pension and a lot of his benefits. So, you know, where he did say, I, I don't have a grudge against your airline, but I do have a grudge, that could fit. Now, um, this brings us to our next piece of information or our next suspect, which would be Kenneth Christensen, right? Now, Christensen enlisted in the Army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. World War II and ended uh, by the time he was, oh, sorry, World War II had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945. He made the occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupation forces in the late 1940s. After leaving the Army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser based in Seattle. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter, 5 foot 8-ish. It was also said that he was about 5'10 to 6 foot, which that's not all that much shorter. Like You could be wrong. Um, and he was also thinner, um, I guess, according to the physical description, and lighter in complexion than eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Christensen smoked, as did the hijacker, and displayed a fondness for bourbon. Um, the drink Cooper had requested. Schaffner told a reporter that the photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those other suspects she had been shown, but could not conclusively identify him. Um, it's important to note that uh, with Christensen, the military background, um, it could have been an inside job, which a lot of people like that idea. Because uh, he did work there as a mechanic and a flight attendant. He was the right age in 1971. Um, he was left-handed. Now, this is the only time anybody ever brings this up, but the clip-on tie left behind had a clip attached from the left. Um, he did tell his brother, who who initially brought him up, like, I don't even think he's around anymore, but he brought him up. He said there, his brother told him, there's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. And he thinks that that meant that he was D.B. Cooper. He also had well over $200,000 in his bank account that was reportedly sold or, or sold, earned by selling land. Um, other than the fact that he did bear a strong resemblance to D.B. Cooper, in 2003, Minnesota resident uh, Lyle Christensen, his brother, had watched a television documentary about the Cooper hijacking and became convinced that his late brother, Kenneth, um, who died in 1994, was Cooper. After repeated futile attempts to convince first the FBI and then the author and film director, Nora Ephron, who he hoped would make a movie about this case, he contacted a private investigator in New York City in 2010. The detective, Skip Porteous, published a book uh, postulating that Christensen was the hijacker. The following year, an episode of the history series, Brad Meltzer's Decoded, also summarized the circumstantial evidence linking Christensen's to the Cooper case, of which you can look up, right? Um, 
Despite the public generated, or sorry, despite the publicity generated by Porteous's book and the 2011 television documentary, the FBI stands by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect. It cites the poor match to eyewitness physical descriptions and a complete absence of direct incriminating evidence. Um, which is crazy, right? Like you've got so many instances of circumstantial evidence. It's like how much is too much. I think this is too much. Uh, I did watch the uh, the the show, um, and they went to one of his houses that he owned because he did own property. And one of them, like the one that he lived in, that he slept in, like had a weird IR signature above his bedroom. And once they went in there, they kind of opened up the little vent, popped in there. There was a makeshift hiding space where they had like a piece of plywood that covered a small hole that you could definitely put a box of money in or a briefcase. And then there was all the insulation that was on top of it. So they kind of had to dig that up. So you could think that's that's super believable and it's exciting and it's spicy. But a part of me is like, maybe that was just kind of something they did to like, you know, add fire to them, you know, or add more flames to the fire. Uh, the FBI did issue an address following one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in our history. On July 8th, 2016, the FBI redirected resources allocated to the D.B. Cooper case in order to focus on other investigative priorities. During the course of the 45-year NORJAC, short for North American Hijacking Investigation, the FBI exhaustively reviewed all credible leads coordinated between multiple field offices to conduct searches, collected all all available evidence and interviewed all identified witnesses over the years, the FBI has applied numerous new and innovative investigative techniques as well as examined countless items at the FBI laboratory. Evidence obtained during the course of the investigation will now be preserved for historical purposes at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. So what do I think? I don't know. I like the mystery. I like leaving it unsolved. I like the effect it had. It was very Hollywood. It was very exciting. Like I believe just on the most recent like series of Loki on uh, Disney Plus, like he popped into a plane in that time frame while he was jumping around and somebody asked if he had like a bomb, you know, if he had a bomb or something. And so he, he portrayed D.B. Cooper. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, there was a... Was it Dan Cooper or was it just, there was a Canadian or French comic book like star. His name was Cooper and he was like a pilot. He's like an ace pilot. And like people think that that's where he got his name from because if he was military and he was stationed overseas, it would make sense that they would have access to it. But it was never sold in the United States. I don't even know if I can buy it now, but I'll try to. Give me like a, I think it'd be really cool from like every episode that I do to get like a piece of memorabilia and throw it on the wall or like a bookcase. Like that would be exciting. Look, look back at my stories. Um, but I don't know. Like I feel like the Christensen was the strongest case. It got the most buzz, but was it just exciting or was it realistic? Um, I think that some of their like initial guys that they, they accused of like Richard McCoy and all them, that was your best chance to catch somebody was back then. Now it's so far buried, even though the internet's come so far and it's done so much. And it's like I said, it's so far buried that it's almost not worth looking into just because like, okay, you find it, but what does that do for you? Um, not much is what I would say. So I'm actually curious to see something. How much did D.B. Cooper steal in today's money? 
right? So just so you're you're you know still tracking, you're still hanging out with me. It's two hundred thousand dollars in 1971, which with inflation would be one point four million dollars in today's money. So he he jumped off a plane with what would be one point four million dollars, which is crazy. Uh, it's worth note that that $200,000 in $20 bills was 22 pounds when he jumped off the plane. So if you want to do like a D.B. Cooper jump, uh, go grab like a 22-pound weight. I believe the closest thing you can find is 22 and a half at the gym uh, on a dumbbell. Or maybe just make your own knapsack because he didn't get one. He had to make it out of a parachute. Uh, I did read a report that said that D.B. Cooper did take two parachutes because he used one to make a bag but that the flight school or the stunt school that they got the parachutes from said that they may have, and they believe strongly that they may have given him a dummy parachute and it would have been one of the main. So if he had a, if he had a secondary and a main, and we already know that one of the, the, the mains was a bad one. Like, and, and there's no way that if I'm the FBI or like local law enforcement that I give you an operational parachute because there's no way you can test it on the plane without pulling a ripcord. I mean, you can inspect it physically, but what are you going to do? You're already on the plane. Congrats. You played yourself. So maybe, maybe it is, maybe it wasn't. There's a lot of people that do believe it was an inside job, but not by like a worker, but like by that flight crew that they were like, oh, this is what's going on. Like maybe DB Cooper was a ghost and that guy doesn't actually exist. They just named like six foot tall military vet guy and threw the bag of money into the woods and went and got it later, or maybe never got it at all. Maybe they lost it. So there's a lot of speculation as to what, what could have occurred, what did happen, what didn't happen. Um, like I said, I think it's cool. This guy in business casual, like rolls up, throws his shades on and does crime. It's like, you know what? I'm going to do this and nobody's going to catch me and I'm going to be home for dinner. Like it, that's what I want to believe is that there is a Billy badass who passed away way back when I, I know on like the, uh, what is it? It's like a jailbreak show. It was prison break. Yeah, that's what it's called. Prison break. Like when he gets into one of the prisons, I don't know if it's in the beginning because he's still, you know, like I still watch the show a little bit, but it was like one of the prisons he got into, like he walks up to an old man who has a cat and he's like talking to him and he's like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. I heard you're this guy. You know, like he's like, uh, he's like, well, so what do you want to know, kid? And he's like, well, I want to know the story of DB Cooper. He's like, well, if you want to hear it from him, I can't help you because I'm not him. If you want to hear it from me, you take a crazy guy jumped out of a plane one day. Um, so I thought that was cool. I love getting callbacks to things that not everybody understands or really knows when it happens. Like if you've never heard of the DB Cooper case and you heard it in TV, you'd still be confused. I think that's awesome because, you know, I read up on these things and when there's callbacks to things that I know about, I feel really included. Now, I don't think they do that on purpose, but I think it's exciting TV to watch. So again, I, I like the mystery of it all. I hope they never catch the dude. I hope they never figure it out. Like it's a bit different if he was like a mass murderer, but he just stole two hundred thousand dollars from a flight or an airline that I don't even think runs anymore. And if they do, I don't use them. You know, I don't use Northwest. I don't use Southwest. I don't use anything with West in it. No Kanye West flights. None of it. So that's what I think. But uh, I really appreciate you guys for hanging out with me and, and kind of going over some stories and learning some new stuff. Uh, I, I hope I'm getting better at this uh, every day. I, I do try very hard to keep it a, as entertaining as possible while still, you know, citing a lot of facts. Um, don't forget, 
uh, to like and you know follow and review wherever you listen. I, I hear that does great things. And you know, let me know at whip, at whippodmike um, on Twitter and everything else what you think about the new podcast, Fantasy Flyers. I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, if you have any input on how long that show should be, it's in its very early stages of you know conception. So it can be thirty minutes, it can be twenty minutes, it can be an hour. Um, I don't know a whole lot about fantasy football podcasts. I've only ever listened to like fantasy footballers and I think their episodes run really long. So I don't know if I'll go that long, but then again, if I want to get my message out, I think it's important to take the time to put that information into the world. So I'll see, you know, and I'll go over it with my, with my co-host, uh, at third coast Tom on Twitter. Uh, he does a lot of podcast work right now. Uh, he's very involved in sports and has a great mind for it, or else I wouldn't be doing this podcast with him. He's my sports guy, as I mentioned before. So I'm really excited. It's going to be a great opportunity with the, uh, with the new network and everything. It's just a lot going on. It's going to be an exciting summer. I'm going to have a lot of great stories for you guys. Um, uh, before I forget, oh man, where, where are my manners? Uh, Clutch's game of the week or, you know, at Whip Pod Mike's game of the week. Uh, I've gone so by many, uh, I've gone by so many monikers in my time, but, uh, the game of the week would probably be, man, what do I, what am I like right now? League of legends, TFT. I've played with my roommate the last couple of nights and auto chess is super fun. Like if you like actual chess and you're a gamer, auto chess is perfect for you. Uh, TFT is the best version of it. A lot of others have tried, but this one has stood the test of time. And I think it's because they constantly update. Uh, their sets and they have a mid set update where it's like this is the these are the characters we're using and these are the the like the traits that they have that do different things and then like mid season they'll mix it up and they'll add new characters and new traits while keeping some of the old ones so you don't have to learn so much all at once and then they'll have full on resets where it's new new skins they always use different skins from the game so it's like if you already played League of Legends, it's it's fun because you get to see some of your favorite characters and they're like coven skins and whatever you're really into. But that that's my recommendation for the week is League of Legends TFT. They just had a mid-season or mid-set update yesterday. Um, so that's exciting. And, and you know, folks, that that that's it for me. That's all I got. You know, I'll pause so you can say what you want to say. Just kidding, we can't hear you. But uh, use your voice on social media, on Twitter, wherever you're at, wherever you're doing. Uh, I want to hear about it. So thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, 